inquests and the state's investigative duties. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to Current Trends in Public Law. This mini-series is part of 39 Essex Chambers' Public Law Podcast. In this series, we highlight important developments in public law areas, keeping you informed of changing trends that could matter to you. I'm Scarlett Milligan. And I'm Tom Tarbury. And we are both barristers at 39 Essex Chambers. Both of us have broad practices and we have particular expertise and interest in the field of inquests, inquiries and public law. Today we're focusing not only on inquests but also on the broader picture of where and how inquests sit within the state's wider Article 2 obligations to protect life and to investigate any arguable breaches of the right to life, as well as some of the other obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights. And we are thrilled to be joined by Anita Sharma, who is head of casework at the charity Inquest. Anita, before we dive into some of the substantive highlights today, could you just explain to anyone who doesn't know the important work that Inquest does? Uh, thank you, Scarlett, and thank you for inviting us uh, along to speak today. So Inquest is the only charity providing expertise on state-related deaths and their investigation. For four decades, Inquest has provided expertise to bereaved people, lawyers, advice and support agencies, the media and parliamentarians. Our specialist casework includes deaths in prison and police custody, immigration detention, mental health settings and deaths involving multi-agency failings or where wider issues of state and corporate accountability are in questions such as Hillsborough and Grenfell. Um, so do have a look at our website, inquest.inquest.com. .org.uk for more information about our work campaigns and matters we'll be discussing today. Amazing. And it's that breadth of expertise that your charity has, which means you offer unrivaled expertise and we're, and we're so thrilled to have you on board today. We wanted to start, Anita, by asking you about the um, Supreme Court case of the Crown on the application of Morn uh, against the senior coroner of Oxfordshire. Many listeners will be familiar with Morn, which is a sort of November 2020 case. Uh, but for those who aren't, the decision in that case was that all coronial conclusions should be determined on the balance of probabilities. And that includes suicide and unlawful killing, which had previously required a finding on the criminal standard of proof, i.e. beyond any reasonable doubt. Anita, inquests were actually involved in this case as an intervener. Is that right? That's right. Could you tell us a little bit more about why a decision was taken to intervene? We felt that the issues at hand were um, uh, important and had a wider um, consequence for for inquests um, for coroners. And um, whilst we remain neutral on the actual standard, we did feel that if the standard of proof for suicide was going to be at the lowest standard, then the standard for unlawful killing should also be at the lowest standard. Um, and that was... Um, because retaining the criminal standard for unlawful killing would be inconsistent with the purposes and natures of the proceedings. And it's right, isn't it, that the case started out, as you say, just about the suicide conclusion, but it was in those appellate courts where the implications and possible changes to the unlawful killing conclusion uh, were looked at and the issue was sort of broadened. Absolutely. The, the um, initial application was about the um, the directions and the issues left to the jury and it wasn't even looking at the standard of proof for suicides but as, as a consequence the court started examining why suicide and unlawful killing was um, held at the higher criminal standard whilst other um, conclusions were at the civil standard of um, 
balance probabilities. Now, as I've said, um, Morn was a November 2020 case, so so hardly current, bearing in mind our, our title of current trends in public law. But what we wanted to ask you, Anita, was how Inquest have been finding the impact of Morn on a, a daily basis, sort of, you know, almost two years on. Uh, has it had the impact that Inquest had hoped for? Um, as you say, Scarlett, it's still quite early days to, to see the full impact, um, partly because of the length of time it's taken for inquests to go through the process and to be heard. We've, we've got huge backlogs. Um, we had seen um, uh, coroners and juries returning short-form suicide conclusions before the Supreme Court um, challenge. And subsequently, we have had a few where there have been suicide conclusions, but with a narrative um, conclusion alongside that. And we also had had uh, received a few unlawful killing conclusions at inquest. So hard to say what the full impact is, um, but the positive is that there have been more unlawful killing conclusions than we've previously had. Um, and it's, this, is, this is an important and significant change. Um, and with the inquest con- uh, suicide conclusions, it's important for many to have suicide as a short form for statistical purposes, but as we also submitted to the courts, without the narrative and the recognition of the failings or contributory factors to death, there's very little opportunity for learning. So short form conclusion is not helpful in itself. Anita, you mentioned you've seen an increase in the number of unlawful killing conclusions. How about the number of suicide conclusions? Suicides as well, we, we started seeing those before the Supreme Court um, ruling. Um, but as I mentioned, at that stage, they were very much a short form. And uh, coroners were saying they were not required to leave more than a short form. Um, the impact of mourn uh, and the requirement or the, the advice to leave a uh, narrative alongside short form, we have seen a little bit more there. But like I say, it's still very early days. So want to watch this space. And just before we move on, I think, Anita, your point about statistics is is very important. And the issue of whether a suicide being recognised in a conclusion is is a good or a bad thing is actually, it's it's quite complex. It's not that binary. But I think it would be fair to say that on the whole, national statistics, which perhaps are are more akin to the situation on on the ground, is a positive of Morn. It's an absolute um, positive, I think, where there's been, um, and and this is something we hopefully can talk about later on in terms of our national oversight mechanism that we're calling for. But for for statistical purposes, it is absolutely important. But for many who want to avoid a suicide conclusion for reasons of their faith or stigma, um, adverse consequences on finances, insurance, it will make it much harder for for them um, and disappointing for those families. Um, And the concern with the short form um, of a simple suicide conclusion, particularly in a death involving the state, is is the um, losing of any learning um, if there's no narrative that's alongside the short form. All right then. So next up, we're going to take a look at the case of the Crown on the application of Gin against Her Majesty's Senior Coroner for Inner London. And that was a case heard in February of this year. Now, Tom, could you tell us a little bit of what this case is about? Yes. So this was a claim for judicial review of a coroner's directions to a jury in a death in custody, Article 2 inquest. The deceased had been found hanging in his cell. In the jury directions under challenge in the JR, the coroner told the jury that there were certain matters the jury had to determine and record when and where his death happened and whether Mr. Ginn died by suicide. 
But by contrast, the coroner left it to the jury's discretion whether they wished to include in their narrative reference to some of the other events in the lead up to his death, particularly his care in prison. And what was the High Court's take on that approach? Mrs Justice Stain, daughter of Lord Stain, found that these directions failed to elicit the jury's conclusions on the central factual issues at the inquest. And so the jury failed to determine in what circumstances the deceased came by his death. And so in turn, the inquest did not comply with Article 2. And she ordered a fresh inquest as one, the inquest failed to fulfil the state's investigative obligation under Article 2, which we're going to be looking at more broadly in a moment. Two, she was not in a position to make findings as to whether the central issues or or any of them caused or contributed to the death. And three, the judgment could not fill the gaps left by the misdirection. So in terms of remedy, um, a fresh inquest was necessary despite the uh, lapse of time since the the original events. Now we have a broad audience uh, listening to the podcast, but but in terms of practitioners in this area of law, what are the key takeaways from this decision? Well, one general point, of course, is the sort of focus on think about directions and their importance uh, rather than just perhaps more initial points about scope in terms of Article 2 or not, or the form of conclusion. But in, in terms of a very practical point, is there's the issue of written directions. So the coroner didn't give the jury written directions just a or a list of issues or a questionnaire of key questions but but Stain J held that well she held that it wasn't necessary to do so and not doing so wasn't a public law error but she did say quote it would have been advisable to give written directions in this inquest in the absence of any good reason to depart from the guidance to which she referred where nothing is provided to the jury she said in writing whether in the form of written directions or a questionnaire, errors are liable to occur. That was paragraph 102. So this seems good practice to ensure other coroners don't fall into the same sort of error, even if um, not giving written directions is not an error of itself. It seems a far safer bet to avoid uh, future judicial reviews of this nature. So as a lawyer might put it, get get everything in writing. Absolutely. So you made reference uh, within your quotation from Miss Justice Stein's judgment to guidance, and there is a plethora of written guidance for coroners, all the, the chief coroner's guidance notes and the law sheets, and there is a wealth of information that it does advise, as you say, written directions, questionnaire, list of issues. There is discretion on 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 how the coroner approaches that task, but the the sort of the trend seems to be putting something in writing. Is that right? Certainly, um, insofar as uh, this case um, throws any light on what the trend now needs to be. It's hard to see a, a good reason why you wouldn't do that. And I would have thought that even without representatives suggesting it, that coroners are going to be on their mettle now and wanting to do so. Thank you. So while we're on the topic of Article 2, we should probably note that in January of this year, the rules on legal aid funding changed. And in Article 2 inquests, Applicants for legal aid funding no longer have to satisfy a means test to qualify for that funding. 
Anita, has that change started to filter through into the system and have an impact at all? Uh, it has, and it's uh, it's a significant change. Um, but just for clarity, so the changes are to exceptional case funding at this stage, and that is for uh, representation at an inquest. Changes to um, the legal help means test for the preparation of an inquest is something that we continue to campaign for. Um, and um, uh, and uh, uh, making further representations to the Ministry of Justice. But yes, those changes that have uh, come in, it has made it much easier both for families and for lawyers. Um, it means that the families are no longer required to go through an intrusive and protracted process of providing detailed evidence of their means for, a, for an Article 2 inquest. Um, we are, however, working with many families who don't meet the um, exceptional case funding criteria but still face inquests without legal representation where state bodies uh, uh, are represented and have teams of lawyers, such as deaths in the community following contact with services. So it's, it's great for those that are very clear Article 2, um, but problematic where it's still state-related um, deaths and the state is represented. Anita, just following on from that, what, what is the importance of uh, legal help then in the in the wider context of uh, these investigations? Well, it's important for families um, to have funding to help ensure they can have a meaningful participation in the inquest and also the related investigation processes. Um, so that's at the preparation stage, um, as well as the funding that's now being put, um, the non-means tested funding that's been put in place for representation at the actual inquest. So, so what kind of um, work, what kind of preparatory work can be done with that pre-assistance, if you like, legal help? Uh, so for example, if it's a death in a prison or at the hands of the police, there are inde uh, independent investigatory bodies, such as the Prison and Probation Ombudsman, uh, the Independent Office for Police Conduct. And those are very detailed um, processes that families also uh, should be participating in. Um, as part of their Article 2 rights, um, and funding will enable them to have representation and assistance through those processes. And actually, would it be fair to say, Anita, that the, the, the PPO reports, so the IOPC reports that you've given as examples, often inform an inquest, so it, it feels rather unsatisfactory that a family can be involved later when the boundaries might al already have, have been set to some degree? by the parameters of those reports. Absolutely, and uh, legal representation at those stages also ensure that those are robust um, investigations, that they're scrutinising any um, systemic issues or failings, um, which, you know, once you're at the inquest, may not do at the same level or may go into further detail. So it's absolutely important for those families to be able to engage in those processes and be represented. Now, the two cases we've discussed so far, Morn and Ginn, have been judicial reviews of inquests, but it's also possible to have a statutory review of an inquest. Scarlett, I understand you were involved in a case involving a statutory review recently. Yes, I was, Tom. So a statutory review is a review pursuant to Section 13 of the Coroner's Act 1988. And it's a similar but different type of review as compared to a judicial review of an inquest. Um, it's available in, in a more limited set of circumstances, so where a coroner has either not held an inquest or where an inquest has been held, but for, for one reason or another it's necessary or desirable in the interests of justice that either a fresh inquest should be held or that reconsideration should be given uh, to the conclusion. 
I should also add that an application under Section 13 must either be brought by the Attorney General or requires the, the approval to be brought under the authorisation of the uh, Attorney General. So a family would need to write to the Attorney General before bringing a Section 13 application. And what's the basic question, but what, what is the difference between the two types of review, JR and statutory? Well, as I've said, they're similar and there is some overlap, but judicial review is generally seen as a slightly more flexible source of review because it's not constrained by the statute, which I've just outlined. And that is also reflected in the powers that are available to the court. So uh, just to put some flesh on the bones in the case I was involved in, earlier this year, which is the case of uh, Her Majesty's Senior Coroner for South London against Her Majesty's Assistant Coroner for South London, the court clarified that it's possible for the High Court on a statutory review to quash the inquest's conclusion only rather than the full inquest, uh, but that the court cannot substitute its own conclusion or give a direction to the coroner that, that only one particular conclusion must be given. Now, on a judicial review, by contrast, the court does have that power to, to sort of substitute its own finding or its own conclusion. And so, as I say, in that sense, it's a more flexible source of review. There's more flexibility in the remedies that are available. But on the other hand, um, a judicial review before the court looks to engage and possibly grant such a remedy, the courts are typically going to be looking at whether the coroner's decision was irrational, looking at the, the, the Wensbury unreasonable test. And that could potentially be a rather higher bar than whether something is in the interests of justice. Are there any particular factors, Scarlett, that point towards one route being preferable to the other? Well, I think on a, a strictly academic view, Tom, as I've said, the, the, the threshold of whether something is in, in the interests of justice is probably lower than whether something is irrational and Wensbury unreasonable. But in practice, unfortunately, uh, the families, by the time the families write to the Attorney General and receive a response indicating whether or not the Attorney General is going to grant um, his or her authority to allow an application to be brought pursuant to Section 13, the time limit for judicial review, which we all know is three months and in any event, event promptly, is likely to have lapsed. So uh, a sort of takeaway tip on a practical front would be to consider issuing a judicial review claim at the same time and perhaps seeking to have it stayed whilst the Attorney General is, is considering the matter under the statutory review. So we then move on to our fourth section, uh, broadening out, if you like, from the core practical issues in inquest law, coronial law right now, to the investigation branches. Uh, so today's podcast, not just about inquest, but the state's broader investigatory duties. And in the last year, there have been two high profile decisions reaffirming the importance of not duplicating investigations. Scarlett, could you talk to us about the first of these? Yes, the first is Her Majesty's Coroner for West Sussex and the Chief Constable of Sussex Police and others, which was a claim brought by the coroner presiding over the inquest into the Shaw and Mayer Show deaths back in 2015, which inquest had a role in. And the coroner was seeking access to protected aviation records, particularly the cockpit recordings. Um, but Tom, perhaps you can shed some light on the court's ultimate decision. Well, the court's approach its way through was to weigh up the benefits of the disclosure as against the adverse domestic and international impact which the disclosure might have on the safety investigation or any future safety investigation and held 
pursuant to that balancing exercise that the harm issue outweighed the benefit issue in light of the chilling effect on future domestic and international safety investigations, in particular the willingness of those involved in air accidents or incidents and experts to cooperate freely, openly and willingly with air accident investigations. And why might this be of relevance to inquest practitioners? Well, the Lord Chief Justice reaffirmed the principle in the 2016 case of Secretary of State for Transport and Senior Coroner for Norfolk, the Norfolk case, that there was no public interest in reinvestigation unless there was credible evidence that the investigation branch, the AAIB, uh, unless their investigation was incomplete, flawed or deficient. So it, it very much consolidated that principle and, if you like, more clearly demarcated, if put beyond doubt, how the two investigative spheres, I was going to say overlap, but in fact abut each other, because they are clearly quite distinct, subject to certain exceptions. Yes, and a similar decision was made last year in, in 2021 in the Sandylands inquest into the Croydon tram crash back in November 2016. And for those who are, are not familiar with the ruling on this point, the coroner in that inquest decided that she should not, and indeed could not, call some witnesses who had reported uh, alleged safety failings uh, relating to the tram system on the basis of the rail accident investigation branch's detailed investigation into the accident. So again, um, there was the coroner said that there was a need to avoid reinvestigation and there was no basis on which the RAIB's detailed investigation report could be said to be incomplete, flawed or deficient, which is the Norfolk test as, as Tom has alluded to. So some of the bereaved families are unhappy with that ruling and have written to the Attorney General to request her approval to ask the High Court for a fresh inquest using the the statutory review process we've just spoken about, Section 13 of the Coroner's Act 1988. Whilst we're on the topic of the state's investigatory duties and questions of of disclosure, Anita, could you tell us a little bit about inquests work on the Public Authorities Accountability Bill, also known as the Hillsborough Law? I, I understand that this would cover inquests, but what about other inquiries and investigations which might even come before uh, or instead of an inquest? Um, yes, so the the outline of the bill is that it would set a requirement on um, public institutions, public servants, officials and those carrying out functions on their behalf to act in the public interest with candour and frankness um, and to define a public law duty on them to assist the courts, um, official inquiries and investigations and to enable victims to um, enforce such duties to create offences for the breach of certain duties um, and to provide um, funding for those families as well. So it would be beyond just the inquest process. It would include um, official um, investigations and inquiries as well. Anita, in the context of the Hillsborough Law, we hear a lot about the, the phrase the duty of candour. And I wondered if you could perhaps explain to us what exactly is meant by that and why it's so important to families in this, these contexts? So the Hillsborough Law um, is a legacy project of the bereaved families and survivors of Hillsborough disaster. And it would create a new duty of candour, as you mentioned, on public authorities and officials to tell the truth and proactively cooperate with official investigations and inquiries. 
what we found through our work is that institutions have closed ranks and refused to disclose information, um, use public money to defend their interests and act in a way that is both intimidating and oppressive. Um, and so state bodies tend to be um, multiple layers multiple lawyers and um, families will quite often be unrepresented. So there's multiple aspects to this law that would um, not only require uh, openness and frankness on behalf of those um, state bodies, but would enable families to participate in a more meaningful way. And I just wanted to add a quote by um, Pete Weatherby um, on a recent event that um, was held on, on Hillsborough Law, which you can see on our website. And Pete is a human rights barrister who represented Hillsborough families and co-authored the original Hillsborough law. And he said it was shocking that a law requiring public bodies to tell the truth was needed at all. Yes, and one observation that I have, Anita, and, and I'm sure Tom will, will follow up with his own, is that in all but the biggest inquests, disclosure is, is quite a battle. And getting disclosure not only from the coroner, but as a a prerequisite to that, the the interested parties providing disclosure to the, the coroner. It's all a, a process that sometimes feels like it is run on, on a lot of trust and there isn't necessarily a strict process by which disclosure can be scrutinised. I don't know if that reflects your experience. Yeah, absolutely. And our experience is that there is frequently a delay or drip feed of um, disclosure of documents, um, often right up to the point of the inquest or the inquiry itself. So for there to be a meaningful inquest or, or inquiry, those families, the bereaved families who have paid the ultimate price um, and have lost a loved one, need to have early access to disclosure to ensure that the inquiry and the inquests are addressing the correct issues um, and that we are looking at the whole picture and not parts of the picture. It does occur to me that the well-developed concept and principle of candour in judicial review means that it is actually quite an um, effective or practical uh, approach to reform because we have these well-developed principles. It doesn't so people who may not practice in judicial review law, unlike standard civil litigation, which has its sort of prescribed standard disclosure approaches that doesn't apply in judicial review, does it? So, but you have instead this duty of, well, of course, subject to specific disclosure applications and so on. But it seems an effective way to essentially borrow from those principles, because whilst there isn't a sort of... Um, standard disclosure procedure in judicial review, the courts repeatedly uh, make statements as to the importance of this duty of candour and public authorities can get in a lot of trouble uh, in relation to costs, in, in terms of remedy, if they, if they breach it. So it's taken extremely seriously and amounts to an effective mechanism to, to adopt, really, um, as a way of bringing about the ends sought uh, after what happened in Hillsborough? So Hillsborough law would actually make it a criminal offence for the failure to comply with the duty of candor. Because as you say, there, um, you know, the inquest of coroner can set timeframes for disclosure and they're quite often not adhered to. Um, or we are seeing drip feed of information. So it would, it would put a stronger emphasis on non-compliance. And Anissa, where are we at the moment with the Public Authorities Accountability Bill? 
We're at the stage where um, we are calling for the bill to be reintroduced in Parliament as a matter of urgency. Um, The original bill was introduced by Andy Burnham in 2017 and went as far as the second reading, but fell before the general election. Um, So we're, we're calling for it to be reintroduced. Now, the final case update that we have for you is the Crown on the application of MG against the Secretary of State for the Home Department, which was heard in July of this year, and three members of 39 Essex Chambers acted in. Now, Tom, could you help us with what the importance of this case Whilst is? not an inquest case, so again, sort of broadening from our kind of core concern that we began with, it is worth for looking at for its broader perspective on ECHR human rights investigative duties. It arose from the stabbings at asylum accommodation in Glasgow in 2020, which people may remember, the claimant was one of the victims who'd suffered physical and mental injury from the attack. And he argued that Article 3 ECHR required the Secretary of State for the Home Department uh, to commission an independent investigation into the events which culminated in the attack. So this is not necessarily, the argument is not necessarily concerning a death but serious injury and the investigative duties related to those injuries. Is that right? Exactly right. So uh, the main takeaway and its, its main utility for inquest and inquiry practitioners, more commonly used to Article 2, is that it, it looks at the relevant principles in relation to the investigative duty under Article 2 th- and 3. And by doing so from a perspective outside our, our usual fare of inquest law, it's actually a pretty useful survey of of those relevant principles as a refresher if you like for all of us who who work in this particular area so it, it may be helpful to just have a sort of rundown in summary uh, in the time we've got of what those principles are uh, this may be trite for lots of people but article two and three uh, and of course article four although we, we, this podcast is not going to be looking at that too but it's also the case that article four so forced labor um modern slavery, etc., also breaks down into these three component parts. And they are the systems duty, operational duty, and the investigation duty. So systems duty, the state must put in place a system that protects life and safeguards against threats to life or treatment contrary to Article 3 in Article 3 cases. Operational duty arises where a public authority knows or ought to know of the existence of a real and immediate risk of inhuman degrading treatment in the Article 3 context from criminal acts of a third party, say, and then investigation duty. And the court addressed that at paragraph 8, and that perhaps be the aspect most of interest to uh, inquest practitioners uh, and those involved in investigations. And the principles delineated by the court there were that well, it arises in different circumstances, including deaths in custody and use of lethal force by the state, also arises where it is known that there is an arguable breach by a public authority of one or more of its positive obligations under Article 2 or 3, which is the element that we're perhaps most uh, familiar with. Further, the purpose of of such an investigation is to secure the effective implementation of the rights guaranteed by the Convention and accountability for any breaches of those rights. As to the quality of and the content of the investigation, 
it must be effective so as to be capable in principle of securing those objectives. This means that the investigation must be thorough in that the authorities must make a serious attempt to find out what happened and should not rely on hasty or ill-founded conclusions to close their investigation or as the basis of their decisions. It is an obligation of means, not result. The obligation may be discharged even if it does not, in the particular circumstances, result in the identification of those responsible or punishment so long as the public authority took the steps required to carry out an effective investigation. And two final very important principles, one of which particularly relevant to, to inquest's role, inquest the charity and Anita, our guest. The first is that it must be conducted by a person or body that is institutionally, hierarchically and practically independent from those involved in the events. And lastly, a victim or the next of kin of an arguable breach of Articles 2 or 3 must have effective access to the investigative procedure to the extent necessary to safeguard their interest. So lots of that will be relevant to inquest practitioners, those who apply for exceptional case funding. It's essentially the premise of all of those things that we work with, but relevant to to set it out, to sort of think about these purposive uh, questions and also to look up from our uh, day-to-day fare, if you like, and think about other areas of practice that actually we're pretty well equipped to look at um, should we want to broaden our compass of areas of practice, for instance. And Tom, you've spoken helpfully there on the relevance of needing to have an effective investigation. In a sort of outline form, is there any difference in substance between the state's Article 2 investigative duties and those arising under Articles 3 and 4? Is there a sort of enhanced investigative duty where someone dies or is is actually the the obligation on the state largely the same? Well, with Article 2, we of course have the well-worked fairly ancient mechanism in England and Wales or for discharging the non-criminal aspects of the state's investigative obligation, namely a, in the case of a fatality of a coroner's inquest. No such practical court system exists specifically for Article 3 or 4. It, they, those questions tend to arise more broadly. Uh, hence, in this case, it was a, a challenge, a call for, and then a challenge for not doing so for the Home Office to launch a um, ad hoc, essentially, investigation. So the practical content of it will be will be different, but the principles very similar, helpfully similar, and essentially throw light on, on each other. So it's helpful to have them all in mind. The Article 4 case, um, worth, say it's, say it's a sort of lead case, but a Court of Appeal case from last year, H and Swindon, looked at exactly the same uh, triptych, as I say, of systems, investigative and operational duties in a very interesting context of um, county lines, gangs uh, and trafficking. Um, So if if people are interested in that area, that's a good Article 4 exposition of the the same themes. Now, listeners of this podcast will of course, be aware of the government's proposals to repeal the Human Rights Act 1998 and replace it with a British Bill of Rights. And there's a there's a concern that a lot of this helpful case law 
could, at least in time, if not initially, uh, be lost. And Anita, I wondered if you had any observations on, on that from an inquest perspective. Yes, we, we um, at inquest, we're particularly troubled by the government's plans to limit the positive obligations um, uh, as set out in uh, Clause 5 of the bill and the potential impact that this will have on the right to life, um, Article 2 of the ECHR. And removing the positive obligations and limiting the enforcement of existing positive obligations would greatly restrict the rights of bereaved um, people during an inquest and investigations into interstate-related deaths. Thanks, Anita. And uh, although we're a bit time restricted today, for anyone who wants to know more about the changes that the British Bill of Rights would bring about, including those that Anita has just helpfully explained, we do have on the 39 Essex uh, webinar page a a helpful full 45-minute length webinar on the changes and, and what the what they mean for practitioners. So I'd recommend that to any of our listeners who are interested. Now, we've spoken a lot today about um, investigations and that includes inquests and, and what they require. But just as a finishing note, I want to focus on the recommendations that might fall out of any of those investigations and, and where they are made, as I say, whether that's part of a public inquiry or as uh, an inquest's preventing future death report. Um, Anita, can you help us with what practical procedures are in place to to follow up on those recommendations? Well, this is an area of huge concern for us at Inquest because whilst um, uh, there is a requirement to respond to the coroner, uh, prevention of future death reports, there is actually no um, system where those uh, reports are collated or analysed. There's no audit of progress or follow-up to ascertain the impact of these reports at a national or local level. And there's no power to compel state bodies to action them. They simply have to respond to the coroner. So what Inquest is proposing is that the government establish a national oversight mechanism which would be a statutory and central oversight body tasked with the duty to collate, analyse and follow up on official recommendations um, arising from investigations, inquests and public inquiries um, into state-related deaths. Um, There's a lot more information about this campaign on our website and I would encourage everyone to look at this. Um, Our call has been receiving growing support by MPs and by recently the Mayor of London um, following the Grenfell Public Inquiry. So do please have a look. Um, This is a huge area of concern where where those recommendations just disappear into the ether. Anita, what kind of monitoring has Inquest itself done of, for instance, the extent to which um, preventing future death reports are do lead to change or the extent to which, I mean, has there been any sort of studies of how many actually lead to anything or is journalists even, if not you? Um, well, in the absence of a national oversight mechanism, Inquest over the last 40 years has been um, collating um, those prevention of future death reports and working um, to do exactly what you're saying, Tom, look at the impact. We've written very many reports and briefings and submissions um, on issues that we've identified, thematic issues arising from particular institutions, particular police forces, um, but this shouldn't sit with inquests. This is a requirement that should be with the government. Um, without having a national oversight mechanism or something similar, 
the purpose of those prevention of future death reports are minimalised and, in fact, are ineffective um, because we're seeing the same institutions with repeated deaths, repeated failings, um, and there's no one that's uh, enforcing those um, uh, recommendations. Anita, I'm quite interested in the work that you say the inquest have done on on thematic issues. So uh, whether they be a, a sort of theme of deaths either in one organisation or across organisations. And I can imagine that that work might be of interest to practitioners acting on behalf of families who want an inquest to be seen, not necessarily uh, as a one-off death, but understanding its place within a broader backdrop or context. And I wondered if that information was available on your website or is there any other way that practitioners could get a hold There's of it? There's two ways of accessing that information. Some of that is available on our website, both in terms of statistical form and also briefing papers and submissions um, that we, we've made over the years. Um, uh, we also have the Inquest Law magazine, um, which is available, um, and we have a closed Inquest Lawyers group um, for, and our members have access to our statistical um, data and information as well. And we're quite often called upon to provide some of that background research for the Prevention of Future Death uh, report stages and submissions um, so that a coroner is aware of what has come before and where we are now and what, whether actually any lessons have been learned. Wonderful. That, that sounds extremely helpful. Today has been a fascinating look at some of the significant ways in which inquests and investigations have an impact not only on bereaved family, bereaved friends, but on society more broadly. And in such an important area, I think it would be fair to say we can only ever scratch the surface of some of these big issues. But today has been, from my perspective, at least very insightful. Uh, there's a lot to think about going forward. And I want to thank um, Anita very much for, for joining us to talk about the amazing work that Inquest does in this field and for all you've added to our conversation today. And thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to do so. It's been great to uh, be involved in this podcast. So thank you again for inviting us along. If you want to know more about the work that we do at 39 Essex, then visit us at 39essex.com. If you want to connect with us on socials, you can connect with the public law team, the at sign 39 Public Law. You can find out more about Inquest and its amazing work at inquest.org.uk or via Twitter. Its Twitter handle is at inquest underscore org. Join us next time for current trends in public law available wherever you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Thank you.